What I would like to talk about this morning is the subject of equanimity. To have a balanced heart. I suspect that the feelings of helplessness, of powerlessness, are probably amongst the most difficult feelings for us to deal with in our lives. To feel unable to affect change. And yet there is clearly much in our worlds, at times much in our own hearts, that seem to evoke these very feelings of helplessness, of powerlessness. One of the greatest challenges we ever face in our lives is how to stay balanced, how to bring equanimity to circumstances, to situations that we're unable to change. And there may be many circumstances and situations which are clearly causing sorrow or pain, (coughs) difficulty, All of us in our lives inevitably encounter a certain amount of suffering. There's a lot that we can't avoid. No matter how perfect or ideal our personal lifestyle may be, no matter how much we may have put energy into armoring or protecting ourselves in different ways, Life doesn't avoid us. How to open our hearts to pain without being lost in reactions? How to open our hearts to receive the pain of the world that we live in without feeling overwhelmed or overpowered by its intensity? It's an enormous challenge. It's one of the greatest arts of the spiritual life. To be able to do that is necessary if we are ever going to move our meditations off our cushions and into the world. There is a great tragedy that sometimes happens in meditative circles, that meditation can be used, it seems, as yet another way of protecting ourselves, as yet another way of withdrawing, to attempt to create an inner world that we have shaped into some sort of reliable, concentrated state where we feel more removed from the world around us is surely one of the greatest betrayals of what meditation 
was ever intended to be. Yet it is possible to do this. It is possible to use meditation as a way of controlling what we experience and how we experience it. Sometimes just by being too quick to put labels on things, we learn to dismiss the world, including our inner world. Sometimes by being too intent on our own highs or the evolvement of our own experiences, we learn to divorce or attempt to divorce ourselves from the common threads of our humanity, of our interconnectedness. Sometimes by using concentration, we can use it to control how much or what actually arises within ourselves to try to form a kind of ideal inner world. This is um, a great departure from the purpose of meditation which is essentially liberation. And it can't be liberated without being awake. And unfortunately, it's control and wakefulness are actually not compatible. So we do need to make some choices in our own inner lives. And I think we do need to be aware of our own motivations. What is really important for us in this journey? What do we really value? What are we actually looking for? I think it is very easy sometimes. You know, there's so many thousands of spiritual paths available and everybody, these different teachers are spouting off about this and get this and do this and do that and make yourself into this. But sometimes I think it is very easy to, to come into this, this kind of journey and this kind of exploration without really being all that questioning inwardly of what are we looking for, where are we, what do we emphasize, what are we moving towards, what is really at the heart of our own journey. We do have to be very careful, of course, that we are not traveling somebody else's path. Um, because if we are, we get lost. And I think inevitably, I mean, none of us, of course, ever begin this journey, you know, with a totally pure heart and pure motivation, you know, blessed saints. We all come in with our variety of motivations, you know, that tend to get flavored by our own tendencies. You know, sure, we'd like a few highs, you know, we're ready to be awake, but, you know, a little excitement wouldn't go amiss. And, you know, we all have a mixture of motivations. We would like to be awake, but we'd rather not see that bit of ourselves. (laughs) That is natural. We all have at times this kind of markiness within our own intentions and motivations. 
that is fine. We can accept that. We can grow through that and learn from it. But still, I think we do need to come back again and again to really looking at our own vision in this practice and what is important for us. Equanimity. Equanimity, it's a word which is used a lot in meditation. It is said to be in many ways at the heart of deepening in practice. It's called one of the divine abidings, one of the abodes of the gods. We live in equanimity. It's one of the factors of enlightenment. It helps us to be awake. It's one of the crucial qualities of heart and mind that allows us to live in a world of change, a world of extremes, and yet still stay in touch inwardly with a place of balance, of openness, of strength. To be awake in this world is at times painful. No one ever, I think, promised that being awake was always going to be comfortable. To be awake in this world is often painful. To live with wakefulness is to be faced in our world with endless revelations of sorrow and of pain and of suffering. Whenever we walk down the street in any city, we see the face of sorrow, the face of pain reflected back to us constantly. In the faces of people who are homeless, in the faces of people who are hungry, in the faces of people who wander around the streets of our towns and cities bewildered or lost or just spaced out in some alcoholic, drug, haziness. We see the face of sorrow constantly every time you turn, open a newspaper, every time you see a television. In refugees, in victims of torture, of war, of oppression. It is endless. It is endless. It seems our bottomless depths to cruelty and to suffering in our world. And often we feel overwhelmed. There is so much that we feel humbled, even reduced, by how much suffering and how much sorrow there is. And at times it may seem that no matter how well-intentioned we are in our lives, no matter how much we try to live with incredible impeccability, incredible generosity and service and care, Sometimes it seems that we're not able all that much to really affect or touch in a very meaningful or very enduring way the pain in our world. There's one tradition that likens the suffering in the world to be an ocean of tears. So then at times we do feel helpless. We do feel powerless. It's a difficult feeling to live with, not only in relationship to the outer world, 
<laughs> but sometimes we feel unable to affect and change our own personal worlds. Constantly, the illusion of control is revealed to us never more clearly than in relationship to our own inner worlds. The illusion of control that we can spend so much time cultivating. We experience in our own lives, inevitably, we encounter loss and we encounter death. We encounter not only the joys of love and connectedness, but also the sorrows of rejection and failure. It is a very rare person who remains untouched by life's unpredictability. We also have this whole area of our own inner world, which at times bewilders us. How often our minds and our feelings seem to do things that we don't want them to do. How often our mouths seem to move with words and we wonder, where do they come from? <laughs> I never wanted to say that. Where does it come from, this kind of well of words? Sometimes we feel ourselves acting with anger or with greed or with jealousy or with hatred. We say, this is not the kind of person I want to be. That's not who I am. That's not who I wish to be. Why am I like this? We find ourselves experiencing feelings, reactions, and mental states which at times feel powerful and unwelcome. Beyond our control, beyond our intentions, beyond our wishes. And we kind of, it makes us stop. You know, and we do of course try all these different strategies, you know, resolutions, I'm never going to say that again. You know, I'm never going to do that again next day. There they are again. Or we try fantasy, you know. Uh, well, next week after I've done a retreat, you know, I'm going to be a totally transformed person. You know, I'll never see that bit of greed again, you know. It's really going to make a difference in my life. <laughs> we all find ourselves at times kind of a little lost or floundering, touched by those experiences that feel out of control. And we at those moments sometimes feel like a leaf blown in the wind, just blown before the force of circumstances or events in our lives. What do we do in those moments? What are some of the responses you have had to feeling powerless, to feeling out of control? to feeling that you might live in a world where things just happen to you. What are some of the ways, I ask you, that you have responded? Passivity. Passivity? Feeling passive. Like you can't do anything. Anger. Despair. And despair, yeah. 
I think we do go through really a whole range of responses and feelings in relationship to life, to the nature of life, which feels so unpredictable. Sometimes we do get very angry. We feel enraged. We feel, why do these things happen? They shouldn't happen. And at times in anger, we, we find ourselves striking out against other people or striking out against life, trying to force change, trying to make someone else see or make the world pay attention that it should be different. Sometimes we blame. We, we really get into blame, you know, as if believing that if I can find whose fault it is, I'm going to somehow be comforted or it's going to bring about an end. Sometimes we do succumb. Yes, we do feel paralyzed. We can sink into a feeling of darkness or depression or despair, feeling, you know, I'm deprived of any meaningful way of response. And, you know, and then the world feels like a very dark place. I mean, I'm sure we've had those moments in our lives where the world feels like such a dark place, filled with kind of malevolent, malevolent people, you know, who are filled with bad intentions and out to do horrible things. And we can't understand sometimes what on earth could move anyone to inflict pain on somebody else. Sometimes we do other things. I think one of the most popular Western avenues in response to suffering is busyness. I'm going to fill my life with busyness, and then I don't have to see. I don't have to respond. If I've got this really full schedule, you know, every moment of my day is accounted for. Every moment of my day has got something to do. I don't have time. I don't necessarily have the space to feel. And sometimes busyness, of course, is a way of numbing ourselves. You know, what, what can I do next? You know, that kind of chronic restlessness that exists in our culture that's, uh, you know, addicted to the next moment. What's next? You know, what's my next new venture? What's my, my next new relationship? What's, uh, you know, if I have some, if I've lost something, what can I gain? If I've, if I've been, if I failed at something, what can I begin? That attempt not to feel by being busy and occupied. It's a way of trying to close our eyes and our ears. Sometimes when we feel helpless or overwhelmed, we, we feel that disconnection is the only avenue of survival for us. You know, feel that if we don't disconnect, we're just going to hurt too much. So maybe then we, we vow, I'm never going to read another newspaper, I'm never going to turn on the TV again, I'm, I'm going to read comics. You know, look, you know, what's, you know, what's available, you know, that's going to kind of show the sort of lighter, more blessed side of life. And unfortunately, life just keeps following us, keeps following us wherever we go. No matter how much we numb ourselves through consumption or distraction or pleasure, 
We've all probably tried these avenues in our lives, and they're like survival avenues. You know, they're not to be judged. It's like we're trying to find ways to cope with pain. And sometimes we don't know what ways are available to us. We try these different survival avenues, and yet often we find that we feel or are left hurt and wounded and feeling disempowered. Our survival avenues are really not that effective. Because what happens, of course we are left with a, an awareness that we cannot ignore. That as long as we are just trying to survive through busyness or through numbing ourselves or through trying not to see, we are left with an underlying, unbearable sense of separation and division. And in the separation, we mentioned it yesterday, this is the greatest sorrow to live with. Separation is the pain we're all trying to get away from in our lives. Separation is the most difficult hurt to live with. I think after traveling these avenues a number of times, there does, for most of us, come a moment in our lives when we pause. When we are willing, at least somewhat, not totally, but at least partially willing, to surrender some of our strategies. And to ask ourselves whether there is another way of being in this world. Is there another way of being in this world where we are not always swinging between avoidance and grasping? Where we don't feel to be such a victim? Where we don't feel so powerless or so reactive? Is there another way to be? A way where we can open our hearts and our minds to the world and to ourselves? in a way that we don't feel overwhelmed or wounded, but where we actually feel to be a, a conscious, creative and free participant in the creation of the world that we live in, in the creation of the next moment. That moment of pausing, I think, some level it becomes clear to us that to be in this world we need to know about equanimity. We need to know about equanimity. Not some, not another strategy. Not another formula. Not another prescription. But a way of being in ourselves. Where we are so deeply rooted in balance in openness and composure, poised, that we can receive without being swamped, that we can give without being exhausted, that we can feel without being wounded, that we can care without being overextended. Equanimity is really about a greatness of heart, a willingness to open, to 
to life's extremes, an ability to open to life's extremes of sorrow and joy without ever departing from a place within ourselves that is strongly and finely balanced. Equanimity is the mother of acceptance and compassion. It's also the parent of skillful action, of clarity of choice. There's an enormous amount of peace in equanimity and yet also remarkable vigilance. Now, equanimity, I have to say it, it is somehow picked up a little bit of a bad name in spiritual circles. It's frequently misused and misunderstood. It's at times spoken of as a way of transcending or going beyond the difficult. You know, and you have all these, sometimes equanimity is spoken of as a way of being unmoved a way of being undisturbed. Now, this is probably not what we had in mind when we came into the spiritual life, resembling a rock. (laughs) I think equanimity does easily become equated with indifference and a kind of spiritual invincibility. It's a kind of, sometimes we think of these images of inhabiting a sort of lofty spiritual landscape which is far above the kind of mundanity of the world. You do hear things said like, you know, like the world's empty. It's all empty. Therefore, how do you respond to emptiness? It seems if the world is empty, the logical step actually might seem to get out of it, you know, to go beyond it, to be un- unmoved. I think these kind of statements about transcending the world and all that business, I don't really think this is about being awake. It's a kind of spiritual class system, you know, where there's those who have transcended and those who are suffering. An enormous amount of kind of spiritual snobbishness can come into that. I always feel suspicious of people who tell me they've transcended the world. I wonder where they went. (laughs) I always wonder where they went, you know, and if they have to come back. But you do hear stories about people who have retired to a kind of blissful enlightenment. Now, this, it's not untrue to say the world is empty. I mean, Anna was talking about it yesterday, about emptiness and form. The world is empty. It's not untrue to say that. That doesn't mean it's irrelevant. There's a difference. Emptiness does not imply irrelevance. In a sense, all of our individual lives, I mean, if one has a very cosmic perspective upon our individual lives, you know, we're just kind of little 
flashes of light that appear and then we're gone, you know, within that, of course, you know, we go through all of our stories and dramas and, you know, all the rest of it. But, I mean, in the, from the perspective of the cosmos, none of us is really all that significant. And the one has a sense of, at times we can have a sense of the, the emptiness of form, how there's this constant unfoldment and dance of form, of arising and passing. And I think sometimes when we have that perspective, we, we also have a kind of sense of play within that form. That, you know, this is not something to get too hung up about. You know, here we are, and let's do it as well as we can. I think we can have a real sense of the emptiness. But on the the other side of emptiness is that, of course, each one of us and everything that we see manifested in this world is a unique and precious and complete expression of truth. And as such, everything, every expression, every manifestation of emptiness is worthy of the greatest integrity and compassion and respect. I think there's another reason we feel suspicious of equanimity, and this I would like to talk about for a moment. This is about our addiction to intensity, the hungry mind. I think sometimes we feel that to be equanimous, we're somehow going to lose the passion in our lives. You know, we're going to become kind of bland, spiritual eunuchs. You know, kind of moving through life unmoved, you know, which seems okay in relationship to suffering, but then it seems like also we're going to, what about the happiness and the joy and the excitement and the thrills? And, you know, I mean, would we ever go to Disneyland if we were equanimous? Would we, I mean, what would we do if we were really equanimous? That's probably, you know, we probably wouldn't feel moved to do that much, you know. We, we just sort of hang out, you know. So I think, you know, and especially in this culture, I think, you know, we, we place such a kind of high value on intensity, on being excited, on being passionate, on being alive and vivacious and all those things that, you know, equanimity doesn't really seem like that an appealing prospect, you know. <laughs> I mean, no, we're going to be unnoticed in the world, for one thing. You know, we're not going to make that big an impression if we surrender our sparkling personalities and, and all of our intensity, you know. People are not going to stand out. So I do think, you know, we, we do at times think that equanimity means this kind of absence of feeling. I rather like the, Tibet, the words of a Tibetan Lama who described equanimity as being equally near, equally close to all things. 
This has got nothing to do with detachment or transcendence or disconnection. But it's a, in a way it's a, a surrender of, of prejudice. That some things are worth being near to and others not. Or some things are acceptable to be near to and others not. To be equally near, equally close to all things. It is a surrender of preferences. This is the highest equanimity. This is beyond detachment. This is beyond calmness. A surrender of preferences. That all things are worthy of being equally near the sorrow and the joys, the highs and the lows, the likes and the dislikes, the people we hate and the people we love. That all things are worth being equally near. To come into our lives with a consciousness that is willing to be equally near to all things is certainly a surrender of a lot of our boundaries. It is to come into life with a true readiness to receive and a readiness to learn. There isn't any formula for equanimity. That's the bad news. There is no prescription for equanimity. You can't practice equanimity. That's interesting. Where does it come from? Equanimity is not like some kind of mental state, you know, that we achieve, that we can then produce when circumstances warrant it, you know, that someone close to us is terribly upset. We think, oh good, that's the right time for equanimity. It's not like that. It's not kind of made to order, not a strategy that we can pull out of the bag in the face of suffering or elation. The key element in equanimity is responsiveness and the readiness to learn and the willingness to come close to whatever our lives bring to us in this moment. It is founded in calmness and composure. It is an expression of balance. It's rooted in the willingness to let go. So wisdom is the kind of foundation of equanimity. The wisdom of being willing to surrender preferences. The wisdom of having clear comprehension. The wisdom of seeing the fruitlessness of being caught up in endless cycles of defensiveness or aggression. The willingness to let go of self to let go of I with all its variety of strategies. We need to be willing to listen to what is in this moment, in this day, in this life, not trying to control it, not trying to avoid it. That willingness to listen is something that we can cultivate and nurture and care for and nourish because we see so many moments in the day where we are so tempted to pull away, to move away, to not open our eyes, to not open our ears, to not feel. We see it in little things. You know, there are so many thousands of moments in the day. I mean, I'm sure 
I'm sure I'm not the only one who experiences this, you know. As Mama said, we'd just rather not. <laughs> you know, I'd rather not. I'd rather not sit in a traffic jam. I'd rather not go on a crowded street. I'd rather not see this. I'd rather not. The willingness to stay attuned. The willingness to listen closely. Rather than there's a big shift in that, a big shift that happens in ourselves and that willingness to cl listen closely. Basically, we stop being a victim and we stop longing to be a master. Now, this is fairly major in our lives, to stop being a victim and to stop longing to be a master. We're forming some different kind of relationship with the present moment. But isn't this is what we're doing here? This is what it's all about. Discovering we can form a different kind of relationship with this moment where we are not a victim and we have surrendered our desires to control and to be a master. I would not ever describe equanimity as a quality of the mind. It is an openness of the heart. Our minds, our thoughts, our reactions, our blame, our praise, these all follow our hearts. First we feel and then we think. So we are not going to find equanimity through trying to fashion our thoughts into a spiritually acceptable shape. This is cosmetic modification, to have only good thoughts or nice thoughts. We need to go deeper than that to discover equanimity. We need to go into the deepest levels of our hearts and to see our pulling away, our grasping hold of, our avoidance and our clinging. Those deepest ways that our hearts move that are so much a response to our beliefs about who we are. So there is more to equanimity than just having a quiet mind. Much more. When is it possible for us to come equally near to all things? What is necessary for that kind of relationship? I think first we have to look at our beliefs about ourselves because this is what stops us from coming equally near to all things. If we believe ourselves to be a victim, if we believe ourselves to be powerless, if we believe ourselves to be a master, if we believe ourselves to be anything at all, we are always going to have something to defend, most likely something to attack. We're always going to have things to be afraid of. There is a certain quality of fearlessness in equanimity. To be not afraid to come equally near to all things. To be not afraid to come equally near to all things, we have to know who we are.
in our lives, we have a lot of extremes. We have a lot of extremes. Sometimes we're praised. Sometimes we're blamed. Sometimes we lose things, and sometimes we gain things. Sometimes we succeed, and sometimes we fail. Sometimes we feel wonderful about ourselves. Sometimes we feel that we're kind of the worst kind of creature ever born. We have moments when we feel very connected, and we have moments when we feel very, very separate. These extremes are part of our lives. These extremes affect how we see ourselves. And certainly we move in relationship to these extremes. These polarities show us a great deal about ourselves. What we grasp hold of and what we avoid, what we fear and what we need, is shown so much through the extremes in our lives. These are the places where we really need to listen carefully, to accept, not to judge, but to really listen carefully, to understand how we can cultivate a quality of learning amidst these extremes. I'd like to read you a story. When he was asked which was the right way, that of sorrow or that of joy, the rabbi of the Berdichev said, There are two kinds of sorrow and two kinds of joy. When a person broods over the misfortunes that have come upon them, when they cower in a corner in despair of help, it's a bad kind of sorrow concerning which it is said. The divine presence doesn't dwell in a place of dejection. The other kind is the honest grief of a person who knows what, he, what they lacks. The same is true of joy. One who is devoid of inner substance and in the midst of their empty pleasures doesn't feel it nor tries to feel their lack is a fool. But one who is truly joyful is like a person whose house is burned down, who feels the deep need in their heart and begins to build anew. Over every stone that is laid, their heart rejoices. In retreats, most of us have experienced a lot of storms and a lot of different kinds of extremes, swings between faith and doubt, between calmness and agitation, between restlessness and peace, times when we get very excited over the progress we're making and just as many times when we feel just as depressed over all the ground we've lost. This is the nature of the self that is identified, of course, with the contents of their experience. But nevertheless, it is the nature of most people's experience on retreats. And in their lives, I'm doing well, I'm doing terribly, I'm great, I'm terrible, I'm awful. This is the nature of the mind which is identified with the contents of their experience and defined by them. This is, of course, we do a lot of learning from this process. And as we really do learn, continue to pay attention and to learn, we do find on retreats and through meditation that 
many of the storms in our lives and in our experience begin to lessen somewhat. Now, that lessening of storms is not because the contents of our experience has changed necessarily much at all. There's not many times we have really new thoughts. I mean, you know, probably a few times a year, but there's not many times when we have really new thoughts. I mean, new thoughts. Most thoughts we've seen before, you know, we've seen a lot of times before and we'll probably see a lot of times again. And there's not many times when we have really new feelings or new mental states again. There's a limited range here. You know, there really is a limited range to the feelings and mind states it's possible for us to have. So the contents are not changing that much, but something is changing something is changing because we're not so upset by them anymore. So, of course, what is happening is that as we've listened, really, to our stories and to our experience and to the moment that we're in, we are simply less defining ourselves by those contents. We don't find ourselves so much resting. Our definition of ourselves is not so much resting anymore in the contents of our minds. This is the most remarkable transformation. This is so liberating today. This is just so freeing to find out. I mean, what a relief. What a relief to find out that I am not that thought that's sort of been niggling away at the color of somebody else's socks. Or I'm, I'm not this kind of mind state that goes on. I mean, it's such a relief. <laughs> To let go of identification, I mean, you know, it is such joy. What is emerging, of course, in that is a greater sense of equanimity. Equanimity emerges very organically in the absence of identification. So this is all we have to do. Not be ident- not identified, and there's equanimity. Equanimity emerges in the absence of identification. So we haven't worked to produce equanimity. We have let go of clinging <coughs> through seeing. And what do we find? Equanimity, an open heart. A willingness to receive without being defined, without being threatened. Such an open heart, it can hold the whole world. With ease and with compassion and with kindness. So I'd just like to reflect on the day, through the day. On that, cessation of identification is the emergence of equanimity because who is at the root of identification? It is I. I want, I don't want, I like, I don't like. This is nice, this is not nice. This is desirable, not desirable. I, the sense of I, has a constant shopping list in this world. It has a constant agenda of rejection and pursuit. There's no equanimity here. This is, we will never find equanimity within the world of the self. 
I'd like to go back a little bit to the extremes in our lives because I'm completely off the track here. <laughs> <laughs> the way it goes sometimes. <laughs> I'd like to just say a little bit more about the polarities in our lives which we find because if we are going to meet the extremes in our world, with compassion and openness and acceptance, we need to meet the polarities of our own lives with that spirit. Now, the more that we are addicted to pleasure is the degree that we will suffer in the face of pain. This is something we should be taught as toddlers. The more that we are addicted to pleasure is the degree that we will suffer in the face of pain. Now, no one likes suffering and everyone likes pleasure. There's nothing wrong with that. But we also really need to appreciate how much the self and the sense of I is enhanced and grows in stature through the identification with that which is pleasurable. I gain, I succeed, I win. I have, I know, I am. All of those ways in which we attempt to fill our lives with the pleasant and with the highs. Oh, it is sad to see the ways in which we are the causes of our own sorrow. Through clinging, through addiction to pleasure. These things will inevitably come to us, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, success and failure. But how much grace can we bring to being with them? How much ease can we bring to embracing them, to celebrating the pleasant, to enjoying it and to welcoming it? But how much grace can we also extend to receiving the difficult and the painful and the challenging? Because the moment that I have begun to build my castle of self upon my grasping hold of pleasure, that castle is filled with its own dungeons that I'm also sentencing myself to. The grasping hold of the pleasant makes us equally vulnerable to the painful. This is not the way to live. It is a life that is going to be filled with fear. Filled with fear of loss. Filled with feelings of helplessness and powerlessness. To bring a greater quality of grace into our lives is to find a place of balance amidst the polarities of our own lives. Then we can begin. We have some foundation for receiving the extremes of our world without also being defined by them, but to receive them with compassion, with an open heart. And the compassion and the grace and the generosity in our lives finds its strength from the equanimity in which we can rest within ourselves and within our world by learning to listen, learning to let go, learning to be extraordinarily attentive to the movements towards, the movements away, the grasping and the avoidance having the willingness to move through those extremes without being 
filled with resistance or struggle, but to receive, to learn to receive is the beginning of equanimity. To learn to receive is the beginning of how to listen. It's one thing I'd like to read you to end with. It's from Lao Tzu. The ancient masters were profound and subtle. Their wisdom was unfathomable. There's no way to describe it. All we describe is their appearance. They were careful as someone crossing over an, an iced-over stream, alert as a warrior, courteous as a guest, fluid as melting ice, shapeable as a block of wood, receptive as a valley, and clear as a glass of water. Do you have the patience to wait till your mud settles and the water is clear? Can you remain unmoving? So the right action arises by itself. I, I don't actually have anything more to say. And I <coughs> so, question. <laughs> Do we have any questions? I don't believe you. <laughs> well, I didn't say what I was going to say. <laughs> Do you have any questions? <laughs> yes, Jenny. Go on. A clue for what? You know, sort of how, Back of a what is the little guidelines along the way that one is not, that one is losing one's like, that one is not so identified with the self anymore, with, with the I am or I like or I don't like. What are the clues that you're not identified with the self? Yeah. Happiness. <laughs> <laughs> Happiness. Peace. Serenity, these are the clues. <laughs> Unmistakable. Yeah. Please do. Yeah. <laughs>
Most of our identification is. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I would add one one thing, which um, is implied in what Christina said, but I think less drama, less drama, less the sense of, of the story being constantly present and rerun endlessly, when there's less drama, less of a self to talk about. seems to me that uh, sometimes I can be more effective in action if I uh, assume a, a specific role. Uh, I'm now going to be a good father and do something that a good father would do. But as soon as I assume that role, the paradox is that I've limited how I am. So um, is it right to assume the role or should one just be open to all roles? Well, it's, I think it's a little bit also what we're talking about. Yes, it's a question of appropriate, appropriateness, <coughs> flexibility, and responsiveness. Um, there are situations in life which call upon us to assume a role. I mean, today I'm sitting up here rather than down there because somebody needs to give the talk. Uh, so there's an appropriateness in that. Um, that may be helpful. It's not necessarily limiting. If I went to the supermarket from here and gave a Dharma talk to the cashier, I would have a real suspicion that I was very limited by my role. <laughs> In, it's a question of responsiveness. How much can we pick it up and lay it down just as easily? that that moment is there and then that moment goes and something else is asked of us. The being equally close to all experience, uh, equanimity, uh, you, it seems that if you make a choice to assume a role, you've limited uh, yourself. But if you don't make a choice to assume a role, for me, it puts me in a place of Unability to act. Inability to act. But not all things are always in that moment equally close to you. In that moment, there may be a child who is nearer to you than your neighbor down the street who is asking you for your response. But when your neighbor moves in, it'll be a different, a different response that is needed. It is the responsiveness to the moment. You see, it can be just as much a role to say, I'm not assuming any role. That can be just as much a kind of, uh, that, that can be more limiting, because that can be a kind of adoption of a stance. You know, here I am, no one, you know. So, you know, I'm not a mother, I'm not, I'm not a shopper, I'm not anything, you know, I'm just no one. So, where do we move in our life from that place? 
a part, a role, if it evolves from a relationship in the moment that's truly called for, it is a way of responding clearly. It can be an expression of clarity and action. You know, I've really, that moment to moment. But it is, the identification is not in the assumption of the role. It's the assumption of I am, of the belief, not of the role in itself. When you um, respond to the initial question about clues, and you said, you know, peace, happiness, serenity, those things. Um, it seems that we all have um, a sense of what we think happiness and peace <laughs> and serenity are, which are very much related to our attachment to pleasure. Yes, unfortunately, so, that's true. So if you could just say something, and I've experienced a little bit of the difference, but, but most of the time I don't have a sense of, of where it's coming from. If you could just say a little bit about the difference. And, those things when they're coming from our attachment to the pleasure and when they're coming from equity. The kind of happiness I'm talking about is not a happiness that's related to an object. Right, but how do we distinguish? Mm -hmm. Between happiness that is related to an object? Or happiness that's involved in the self. I mean, if we're walking along outside and the beautiful breeze blows across our face and we're feeling very spacious and it feels that's wonderful. like happiness. It feels like happiness, but it's also it is happiness. happiness about the pleasure of how nice it is to have that lovely breeze cross our face. Yes, but hap happiness is, it, it, it is not, I mean, it, we need to be very careful here, because on one way we can say that, yes, we might draw a conclusion, well, the happiness that is related to an object is not true happiness. But it can be very true happiness. It's a kind of, it's, it's like it's a reflection a momentary sort of reflection or embodiment of the kind of happiness that lies within us, that is possible for us, that has nothing to do with any object. But it, it is like, I mean, I would never want to deny the happiness that comes in our lives from the most simple and innocent of pleasures. Because in some ways, those, hap those moments of happiness in our lives, they're kind of like signposts for us that say, aha, you know, this is possible. And maybe we can receive them as ways of, of encouraging us to, to look more into the nature of happiness and not rather than... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.